Let's pray. Okay, would you bow in prayer with me? Father God, we do praise you. Oh, we praise you for your glorious, resurrected, ascended Son who was scourged with stripes for the healing of our souls, who was bruised for our willful iniquities. He was pierced and wounded for all of our ungodly transgressions, and he bore that crown of thorns upon his brow in our place, because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us so much. And we praise you, Lord, for the truth of his complete triumph over sin, which he proved when he did arise early resurrection morning right up out of that tomb. Thank you for this man's artistic skills that he uses for your glory to lift up our hearts to praise the foundational truth of our faith, which is the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father, that your mercies are new every morning because we need those mercies again today. We want to come before your word now with teachable and humble spirits so that we're open to hear what your spirit has to say to the church of our generation. We want to be doers of the word and not hearers only. We want to be 100% committed to living our lives in view of eternity. So keep us ever mindful of the fact that what is today present before us in this world is only temporary. Everything will pass away except your word and the souls of, of men and women and boys and girls. So we ask that we would be wise to redeem our time until that day when you return. We now ask that this hour would be an hour of joy for your people, and may our devotion to you be one of genuine, genuine sincerity. For we ask these things, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen. Well, I know you won't see the outline until you get home and look it up on the email, but here's our outline for this lesson number two in our Acts study, study of the early church from the book of Acts. The title for our lesson is A Last Look. And our outline we're going to be looking at, verses 4 to 11 this morning, we're going to look at the wait command. He commands them to wait. Then the when question That's the question of the disciples. Are you going to restore the kingdom at this time, Lord? Then his weighty comeback, the witness commission, Acts 1.8, and the wondrous conclusion, which is, of course, his ascension back to heaven. The book of Acts presents its readers with a pattern for every other generation of the church age, kind of like When Moses, thank you, I knew something was different. We were in the dark. (laughs) But the book of Acts is like a pattern for the church age, okay? It's like when the Lord said to Moses, uh, when he gave him the pattern for building the tabernacle, he said in Exodus 25, 40, Look, that thou make them, the tabernacle and all the furnishings, make them after their pattern which was showed thee in the mount, the Mount of Sinai. Moses made the tabernacle after a pattern. Where is the original tabernacle? It's up in the third heaven. Acts presents a pattern for Christian testimony 
How do we give our testimony? Well, we get a pattern, a really good one, from the Apostle Paul. He gives us his testimony several times in the book of Acts. Um, it gives us a pattern for missionary work, for worldwide evangelism, and for the building up of the church through church planting. It is a pattern that we in the 21st century would be wise to follow because the closer we come to following this pattern, the greater will be the blessings that accompany our efforts. Now, as mentioned last week, as we study this book, we should continue to ask ourselves, what is it that made the early church so strong? And how did it make its way so quickly into the pagan culture of its time? Humanly speaking, we spoke about this last week, humanly speaking, those early believers really had nothing much going for them. They certainly didn't have a lot of money to speak of. Uh, they had no modern-day technological uh, tools, which might have been good, you know, because we have some trouble with that. <laughs> right, Terry? <laughs> but they didn't have any technological tools to help them advance the gospel. They didn't even have transportation uh, they did not have a complete Bible either, did they? Because the Bible, the New Testament, was in the process of being written. Also, she was bringing to the world a message that was absolutely unimaginable, that a man actually rose from the dead. No one had ever done that before. That's a pretty tough message for the world to swallow, wouldn't you say? And he arose in the same body that had been beaten beyond human recognition and crucified and then buried for three days and three nights. And it goes on. That man was actually God himself, the one and only true God of the universe. It was an utterly astonishing and a very difficult to believe message. A lot of people today say, you know, that's just utter foolishness, don't they? It was am amazing to me when I think about the fact that the Gentiles were actually more receptive to that message than the Jews were. And the Jews had the great advantage of the Old Testament. You know, all the messianic prophecies that definitely pointed to the fact that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. But the Gentiles were more receptive. Well, at the very beginning of the book of Acts, we still read, as we did with the ends of the four gospel accounts, we read about the risen Christ and the miraculous. In chapter 1, as we're going to discuss this morning, there is the amazing miracle of his ascension. You know, he defies the law of gravity and just rises right up into the sky. In chapter 2, there is the spectacular miracle of the descent of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of traffic going on. No wonder the disciples were just like, you know, ah. <laughs> because the Lord ascends, two angels come down, and then the Holy Spirit comes down. You know, a lot of back and forth activity there. But the, there's the descent of the Holy Spirit. And then there are flames, you know, fire above the heads of the apostles. And then what do the apostles start doing? and I believe all 120 believers, they start speaking languages that they never knew before, in dialects, you know, with even accents, <laughs> so that people could understand. That's a pretty amazing miracle. 
Likewise, there are other miracles that take place in the early chapters of the book of Acts. However, as the book progresses, there are still miracles, but they're not quite as spectacular. And as the book progresses, the world kind of settles down to sound a whole lot more like the world that we know today. A world without a lot of obviously supernatural miracles taking place. Place. Now, there are, of course, miracles still taking place today, but not quite so obvious as these. And a world that persecutes those who bear witness of Christ. You know, the early church encountered a tremendous amount of hatred against her and persecution. Originally, where did that hatred and persecution come from? The Jews, the religious rulers, the same ones who killed Jesus. They ha- and, and Saul of Tarsus was one of them. But then it kind of transitioned over so that it was the Romans who were persecuting the early church. And yet, in spite of all that, the gospel went forth like a blazing forest fire, spreading from obscure Jerusalem to the very capital of the vast and powerful Roman Empire. And it did that in just one generation. Pretty amazing. That right there is a spectacular miracle. How did the gospel spread so fast? Well, for one thing, Luke was concerned about including in the book of Acts a great deal of the teaching and preaching of the gospel message. Why? Well, the reason is because that's what the Holy Spirit uses to spread Christianity across the continents. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So, I think I told you this last week, but in the 28 chapters of Acts, Luke includes some 19 recorded sermons. And there are testimonies included, and there's little short sermons, and then there's long sermons. The first sermon is by the Apostle Peter. And wait till you hear that man preach. You can hardly tell it's the same guy. It is amazing. And he actually preaches quite a few sermons in the early chapters of the book of Acts. The longest sermon, who wants to take a guess? Who gave the longest sermon in the book of Acts? Stephen, who said that? A plus there, Christy. Stephen gave the longest sermon, and when he was through, what did they do to him? They killed him. They stoned him to death. Then, of course, you know that there are many sermons by the Apostle Paul. Today's Laodicean, lukewarm Bible-criticizing stage of church history, and yes, the church itself, unfortunately, criticizes much of the Bible. It's awful. No wonder we have such a poor testimony in the world. But our stage of church history really desperately needs to rediscover the spirit and the commitment and the doctrinal teaching of the early Christian believers. So, with that introduction, let's look at the Lord's wait command that he gives to his men in verses 4 and 5. He gives the command, and then he explains why he is telling them to wait, all right? Acts 1, verses 4 and 5. It says, And being assembled together with them, commanded them, that's, of course, Jesus commanding them, that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait. For what? For the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. 
For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. All right, here the Lord gives his men a very difficult command, which he then backed up with an explanation for it. The command for them at that time was probably more difficult for them than the Great Commission to go forth and preach the gospel because they are raring to go. They want to go forth and tell everybody what they have seen and experienced. Um, So why do I say that this was probably a more difficult command for them? Because they are raring to go. And they're told, no, you can't. You have to wait rather than witness. They're on fire to witness. Seems like it would be a wonderful thing if we had that problem, right? <laughs> but instead, what do we do? No, we, we wait rather than want to witness. You know, we, they, they wanted to witness, but they were being held back to wait. We wait to witness. Why? I mean, just open your mouth. Why do we do that? And, you know, we've got all our reasons, and I'm just as guilty as all of us. But this, this waiting business on their behalf would have been a restraint. It would have involved a restraint on their natural impulse. Now think about this. If you had seen Jesus alive from the dead, to your own eyes, and as is going to occur in a few more minutes from where we are, you had actually seen him ascend up into the sky. If you had seen that, what would you want to do about it? You would want to tell everybody, everybody you met, starting with your own Jerusalem, your own family, and then going out from there. I know, you know, a lot of people say, look at you like you're nuts, but you'd be so full of, you know, excitement that you would just want to tell everybody. Remember, only 43 days earlier from this, they're about to see the ascension. It was the day of the Lord's shocking betrayal by one of their own. One of the apostles had betrayed him. And then he had been arrested. And they had, you know, seen him suffer that atrocious death by way of crucifixion. And these men went where? They went straight to the bottom of the pit of despair. They were utterly, utterly shattered. All their dreams had come tumbling down. Everything was just broken. They had forsaken everything. They had forsaken their families and they had forsaken their their occupations and everything to follow a man who they genuinely believed was their long-awaited Messiah deliverer, the one promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. But he had allowed himself to be arrested. Now they knew he had power. They had seen him perform fantastic miracles. And remember, even when he was arrested, he had said, you know, they said, who, who do you seek? And he said, or Jesus, they asked who he was or something, and he said, I am. And what happened? They all tumbled down like dominoes. He, they knew he had power, but he allowed himself to be arrested. And he willingly laid down his life so that they could nail him to the cross. He was hung from a tree. And they knew that by God's own word in Deuteronomy 20, (coughs) 
where is it, 2123, they knew that God cursed anyone who was hung from a tree. So how could the true Messiah be cursed by God himself? It just did not make sense, did it? So the only conclusion they could come to was that he must not have been who they thought he was and who he claimed to be. But then he starts appearing. And initially, they don't believe the reports. Well, after all, you know, they are coming from women. And you know women. (laughs) They can get a little bit carried away. But then, there he is, suddenly right in the very midst of them. And what did Luke tell us? They believe not for joy. What does that mean? It was just too good to be true. But it was. It was true. You know, when the absolute truth of the Lord Jesus' bodily resurrection really, really gets a hold of you, I mean, so that you have no doubt about it whatsoever, I don't have one ounce of doubt about it. Not at all. When that really gets hold of you, what do you do about it? You want to tell it to everyone who will listen. That's the problem. Not everybody wants to listen, do they? Not everybody has ears to hear. But we don't know that till we tell them. And I believe this is exactly what these men did when they went up to Galilee where he had told them to meet him. You know, he appeared to them Resurrection Sunday, and then they waited in Jerusalem another week because we know it was the next Sunday that he appeared to Thomas. But after that, they departed and went to Galilee because he said he would meet them there, right? Um, And I believe that when they were in Galilee, they told everybody because we know that there were 500 plus people assembled to see the Lord Jesus when he made his eighth post-resurrection appearance. But now they're back in Jerusalem. Okay, they're back in Jerusalem. And the Lord says, Acts 1, 4, in effect, don't witness yet. There is something else pending that must be accomplished First, it's the promise of the Father that I told you about. When did he tell them about the promise of the Father? What is the promise of the Father? That he would send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. He told them that on the very night of his arrest when they were together assembled in the upper room and they were celebrating the Passover supper, which he transitioned to the Lord's Supper. He spoke in his farewell discourse quite a bit about the coming of the Holy Spirit. So he goes on in verse 5 to explain his command. And he explains it with the, the fact that it's a promise, the promise of the Father. You are going to be baptized, he says. But not as John the Baptist Baptized. How did John, what did John the Baptist baptize with? That was a bad sentence, but what? <laughs> That's like Peter Piper picked a bit. <laughs> Fuzzy Wuzzy was a bear. <laughs> yes, you will. <laughs> what, what was the element he used to baptize? Water, thank you. All right. This baptism was not going to be by way of water, but it was going to be by way the element. I hate to say that because the Holy Spirit is a person, so, you know, element is a thing. But the element, essentially, with a capital E, would be the Holy Spirit. It was not going to be an immersion of their bodies. It was going to be an immersion of Christ's body. 
his spiritual body, the church. He was going to baptize them into his body, the church. Which, now remember, they essentially know nothing about the church. They don't really get it. He mentioned it a little bit in the Gospels, but they didn't have a clue what he's talking about. They don't know anything about the church age yet, okay? Remember that. The church isn't even born yet. Um, But the church would be born, we know, in ten more days from where they are, but not by way of the element of water, such as in physical birth. We are all born into this world by way of water, right? From the water sack in our mother's womb. But the church would be born by way of the Holy Spirit. Remember the Lord's words to Nicodemus back in chapter 3, John 3, 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You and I are not born again when we are baptized with water. That doesn't do anything except get us wet. We've talked about this before, right? That is just our identification with Christ and his baptism, which I'll talk about in a minute. But we are born again when we are baptized from above by the Holy Spirit. And the same is true of the church, which makes sense because we are the church. We make up the church. The church came to life, was born, when she was born by the Spirit. Now, if you were with us when we were back in the Lord's ministry in Luke chapter 12, you might remember that he said this, what I'm about to tell you, um, to his men. He said, and it was kind of strange probably for them, and they might not have understood what he's talking about, but he said, I have come to send fire on the earth. But I have a baptism to be baptized with. And then he kind of was just gave a little bit of a soliloquy, kind of speaking to himself, and it gave us a little glimpse into his heart when he said, and how I am straightened till it be accomplished. What does that mean? Well, he was saying that he had come to cast fire on the earth. But at that point in time, he could not yet cast it. Because first, he had a baptism to endure. And then he said, and how I am straightened. Until it's accomplished. You know what that word straighten means? It means how I'm constrained in my soul. Kind of like I'm, I'm imprisoned in a sense. He longed to perform his mighty work of casting Holy Spirit fire on the earth. But he felt almost imprisoned because that work could not be done until he endured the baptism of his passion. And his cross, which if you think of it in terms of baptism, that's what it was. Because he really went down into the deep waters of his own physical and spiritual agony in his passion on the cross, right? He endured an eternity of of hell for you and I. An eternity of separation from his father. That was going down into the deep waters. But then what did he do? On the third day, he rose up from all of that suffering and death in his resurrection. Isn't that a good name for it? He had a baptism to endure first. 
before he could send the Holy Spirit fire, which he wanted to do. And, you know, I thought about the fact that when he made that, when he made that statement, he was actually again making a prediction of his death and his resurrection when he called it his baptism, wasn't he? So that's another prediction. Well, in the book of Acts, we find that the Lord is no longer constrained. He is no longer straightened. His baptism has been accomplished. He has passed into the infinite glory of a greater life, and he is about to do what he so longed to do. He is about to cast down and then spread the fire. On the other side of the cross, he was straightened. He was constrained. His human flesh and his yet unfinished work imprisoned him from doing what he so longed to do. But I have really good news for all of us. On this side of the cross, the Son of God is no longer constrained. Either by the veil of his human flesh or by the veil of an unfinished atonement work, he is doing Yet today, what he planned and longed to do from eternity past, he is creating his bride. You know, he created a bride for the first Adam, didn't he? How did he create a bride for the first Adam? Well, he put him into a deep sleep, picturing death. And then from his side... He pierced his side to pull out a rib and make him a wife. Now, the book of Acts is the record of Christ baptizing people into the body, his body by the Holy Spirit, and creating his body. I mean, his bride, I'm sorry. (laughs) And how did he create his bride? How is he still creating his bride? What did he do to create his bride? He willingly put himself into that deep sleep, which pictures death, and his side was pierced. Remember that spear that went right into his heart and out gushed water and blood? That's what it took for him to create his bride, and he is called in the scripture the last Adam, the second Adam. Such a beautiful picture. Anyway, the book of Acts is the record of the Lord Jesus Christ baptizing people into his body by the Holy Spirit and scattering the fire of his dynamic power of the gospel message. Do you remember when the Lord in his farewell discourse, John 14, 15, and 16, told his men that it was expedient for him to go away, that it was actually going to be far better for them if he did go away? Because if he didn't go away, then the comforter the parakletos, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside and it would actually indwell them. If he didn't depart, then the Holy Spirit could not come. The far better thing is Christ's presence and firepower in us by the Holy Spirit, by his Spirit. Think about it. If the Lord had remained in this world, living his eternal life, on the human level only, and in the physical presence of men only, then we would be the ones who were constrained. We would be the ones who were straightened. We would have been constrained. 
and uh, imprisoned. Because if he was in Jerusalem, which he probably would spend most of his time there, don't you think? Probably. If he was in Jerusalem, then how could he be with us here in North Carolina? We'd be constrained. We'd be in prison. We couldn't be with him. If he was in Galilee, then he couldn't be with his people in all the other parts of the world. But now he is present with his people everywhere, isn't he? 24-7. He's here with us. His spirit is here with us right now in this room. He said, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Well, at the end of verse 5, he told his men that the promise of the spirit would occur when? What did he say? Not many days hence. Now, I don't know if these men had figured things out yet. I don't know if he maybe taught them. He taught them a lot during his 40 days of post-resurrection appearances. I don't know if he taught them about the seven feasts of Israel or not. And I don't know if they figured out that, that significant events concerning him were occurring on the Jewish feast days. I think they probably got the fact that he actually died on the feast of Passover (laughs) as the Passover lamb. I wonder if they thought about the fact that he was buried on the first day of the feast of unleavened bread. His body, he was the bread of life, his body had no leaven in it, right? No sin. It was buried. But he would never see decay because he had no sin. I don't know if they realized that his resurrection was on the Feast of First Fruits because he is the first fruit of the resurrection. But if they did manage to figure all of that out, then they could suspect that the very next significant event concerning him, which he had just said would be, the promise of his father, the coming of the Holy Spirit, that that just might take place in ten more days when it would be the Feast of Weeks, which is called Shavuot. Is that my, am I pronouncing it right? Do you know? Shavuot. Okay. Um, it looks like Shavuot, but I'm not Jewish, so I don't know how to pronounce Hebrew. I can do okay with the Greek, but not the... Okay, good. All right. Um, And it's also called, we know it more, as the day of Pentecost, because the pende is the Greek word for five, and it was 50 days after the Feast of Firstfruits. So 50 days after his resurrection would come the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So where they are right now, it would be 10 days. I don't know if they know that or not, but they do know it would be not many days hence. Okay, that's, that was the wait command. Now let's look at the when question, verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? The Lord... Remember, look back at verse 3. He had been teaching these men about things concerning the kingdom of God. All right? Then he had just told them that they were to wait for the Father's promise of the baptism of the Spirit. So their minds naturally turn to wondering if it would be at this time, you know, that he had just said, at the, at the time of, not this day, but at the time when it would be the outpouring of the Spirit, if it would be at that time that he would restore the kingdom to Israel. 
Now, this is good thinking on their part. It shows they really knew the Old Testament because the Old Testament is full of passages such as in Isaiah 36 and Joel 2.28 that say, say that the, when the kingdom came, there would be this great outpouring of the Spirit of God. So we really can't blame them here for thinking this way. He had been talking about the kingdom of God. Then he just told them there would be the, the promise of the Father and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So naturally their mind's going to go to thinking, well, will it be at that time then that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? So what I want to do is before we look at some corrections that he makes regarding their question, there is something positive. So we're going to start with the good news, okay? There is something positive about their question. Other, you know, it is positive that they knew the Old Testament scriptures. Um, but there is a wonderful new confidence in these men, which is seen by way of, of their question. How do they address Jesus here? They call him Lord. And they'd called him Lord many times before, hadn't they? But now they really mean it in the very fullest sense. They know he is Lord, Lord God omnipotent. They're completely confident in his person as God, as Lord. They're completely confident in his power to bring the divinely promised literal kingdom to fulfillment. Both his resurrection from the dead, which they saw with their own eyes, and his post-resurrection teaching regarding the necessity of his death, you know, that it behooved Christ that he must suffer and die and rise on the third day, um, that all these things had been predicted in the Old Testament, all that made a difference in these men, a huge difference. And I want to show you the contrast by reminding you, back during the, his earthly ministry, when he first told them that he must needs go to Jerusalem and uh, suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, that he would suffer and die. And then he said, and rise again, but they never seemed to hear that, did they? Um, but he told them for the very first time, they were in Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16, 21. And what was their response to that news? Well, Peter, speaking probably the thoughts of all of them, said, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. In other words, this isn't even remotely possible. Of course you're not going to die. You see, Peter was calling him Lord, but what position was Peter taking? He was taking the position of Lord, telling the Lord what he would do. You see, if Jesus died, according to their thinking, everything would be lost. It would be utter defeat. And there would be no promised kingdom. And then after he did indeed die, as he said, and he was buried, all of the apostles were thinking the very same thoughts that were expressed by two very despondent disciples heading out of Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus. And they're joined by Christ himself resurrected, but they don't recognize him. And you know what they say? They're talking to him and they say, but we trusted. Past tense. We had hoped that it had been he, Jesus of Nazareth, which should have, should have redeemed 
Israel. You notice their narrow focus? They just wanted him to redeem Israel. They didn't really care about the rest of the world, did they? We hoped it had been him. You know, and now we're on our way home because all of our hope is is past tense. Everything is destroyed. They're going back to their former lives. Their confidence in Jesus of Nazareth is totally extinguished. But now do you see the difference? This attitude has completely, dramatically changed. They're gathered around him here in Acts with great confidence in both his person and in his power. And they ask him, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? They know he now can indeed make that possible. He can restore the literal kingdom to Israel. However, their question tells us that there were concepts about the kingdom of God on earth that they had not yet grasped. They are still thinking in terms of a political and a territorial kingdom. You see, they're hoping now that the Lord is death-proof, okay, <laughs> he, he, yeah, he's bulletproof, definitely. He's, he's uh, death-proof. He can defeat the Romans now. Nobody can stop him. He can drive the Romans right from Israel so that Israel might again enjoy an earthly reign such as she had under King David, except instead of David reigning would be Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. He would be king of kings. Now, their words, restore again, make this very clear that this is indeed their thinking. Also, notice he uses his use of the word Israel. Will thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're not only thinking of a political kingdom restoration of something that her nation, their nation at the peak of her glory had already known, but these men are thinking entirely of just an ethnically restricted kingdom that would be for Israel and Jewish people alone. These were Jewish men. All the apostles were Jewish. They're not yet open to and clear about a messianic kingdom that included the Gentile nations. Oh yes, if you pinned them down and asked them, they would agree that individual Gentile people we're welcome to come to Jerusalem and to Israel to serve and worship the one and true God if they, of course, did it their way. Basically, if they became Jewish, you know, a Jewish proselyte, and they obeyed their laws, the dietary laws, and not eating anything that was strangled or had blood in it, you know, and not eating anything that was offered to idols and, um, and being circumcised. Of course, all their, all their males would have to be circumcised. So they would be open to Gentile people coming into their kingdom if they did it the Jewish way. But their big picture of the kingdom was that it was strictly for the nation of Israel. So did the Lord still have a work to do in them? Mm-hmm. And we're going to see that in the book of Acts. He actually has to send Peter a pretty vivid dream about things. And, of course, we know he uses the apostle Paul mightily in this way. The Lord does not, however, correct their desire for the kingdom because it will take place one day on earth. There will be a literal 1,000-year kingdom on earth. And, you know, even if they didn't understand the nature of it, 
he doesn't correct their idea about a literal kingdom. And if there was to be no kingdom, as amillennialists believe, they say there is no going, not, not going to be a literal kingdom on earth. If that was true, this would be the time for him to speak up and say so. He could say something like, no, I'm sorry, you guys, you're wrong. All those Old Testament prophecies about a literal kingdom on earth, where I am king of kings, sitting in Jerusalem, but ruling over the entire world as king of kings and lord of lords, all those are just spiritual. You're just supposed to take them allegorically. There isn't going to really be such a thing. This would have been the time for him to make that correction, but he doesn't do it. The only thing he corrects is their time idea. Will it be at this time? All right, so let's look at his weighty comeback, all right? There's two two puns in that. The weighty, W-E-I-G-H-T-Y. He had told them to wait. This is his weighty comeback. I don't know if you get that, but think about it. <laughs> All right, Acts 1-7. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. By way of his answer here, he's acknowledging that there would be an earthly kingdom, but it would be in the future. It would be at a time and at a season not to be known by them, but it was certainly known by God. But while it was not for them to know the time for the kingdom on earth to be established, you know, this is about, this is not about the rapture, okay? They don't know anything about the church, so they certainly don't know about the rapture, which is the first part of the Lord's second coming. You know, he comes at the beginning of the seven years of tribulation, and that's for his church, he comes in the air. At the end of the seven years of tribulation, he comes to earth, back down to the Mount of Olives, and that's when he does indeed set up his kingdom. That's what they're talking about here. And if he started explaining all that, they wouldn't have got it, but he just said, it's not for you to know right now. If he had told it would be at least 2,000 years, that would be kind of disappointing, wouldn't it? Um, so the church has always thought everything could be imminent, but he t- does tell them two things that they could know. They couldn't know the time, but they could know, number one, that they were going to receive the Holy Spirit's power, and they were going to be his witnesses. Actually, as we're going to discuss, they already were his witnesses. Let's look at the witness commission. And this is the key verse in the book of Acts because it gives us the general outline for the whole book, and it is also the great commission of the fifth book of the New Testament Pentateuch. Let's look at it. He says, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem that's where the book of Acts starts and in all Judea that's where it spreads to and then into Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth Okay, so because we have already discussed the promise of the empowering of the Holy Spirit who would arrive not many days hence, which we know would be ten more days. I don't know if they knew that or not, but we do. Um, And because we are going to be discussing this marvelous event in a couple more weeks when we get to chapter two, I'm going to move on. All right, I'm not going to spend any more time about the promise of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So let's just concentrate now on his second promise of this verse, where he says, And ye shall be witnesses unto me. Notice how this last statement by the Lord. Now this is his last recorded statement before he goes back to heaven, so it's pretty important. This last statement 
before he then lifted up his hands and blessed them, we learn that from Luke's gospel, was a further correction of their question back in verse 6, if you think about it. They had an ethnically restricted concept of the kingdom, didn't they? That it was just for Israel. But what does he tell them? No, no, no. You're going to be my witnesses to the uttermost part of the world. So again, you see how he's correcting their misunderstanding of the kingdom. Now his, his words, and ye shall be my witnesses, are a promise, really, more than they are a command. We usually kind of look at this as a command. Ye shall be my witnesses. Uh, you know, that's a command. But no, it's a promise. He's telling them that they will be. Actually, they already were his witnesses. Because they had witnessed his life, his whole earthly life, you know, from the time he, he began with his first miracle in Cana. Well, actually, they had, been, they had been disciples of John the Baptist. So, you know, they were really there all along until the time of his crucifixion and burial and resurrection. They had been his witnesses, hadn't they? Probably more than anyone other than his mother, Mary, who had known him ever since she was conceived of him by the Holy Spirit. Now, a witness, you know, is not an advocate. A witness is not like a lawyer. An advocate is a professional. He or she goes to some school of higher learning to study defensive argumentation and, uh, I guess, debate. They must study debate, do you? You must study debate, right? (laughs) And uh, psychology and oratory skills. I don't know, maybe even body language so you know how to persuade the jury in a court case or something. All kinds of things they learn in order to bring about persuasive conclusions. An advocate is a person who is hired by others to do a professional job of complete, uh, convincing people on one side of an issue. However, if an advocate is going to win his or her case, he generally needs to have witnesses. Contrary to an advocate, a witness does not need to have an education. You know an A witness can hardly speak the English language sometimes. A witness could be a real redneck. (laughs) It wouldn't matter. Doesn't have to speak well, doesn't have to have the right kind of body language, or any, uh, doesn't have to take debate classes or persuasive training classes. But what a witness does have that an advocate does not have is that the witness saw, actually saw, and or heard, and or experienced that which is being discussed. Therefore, he is summoned or compelled to give a testimony. He doesn't really have any choice in the matter. If he's summoned and compelled to go to court and give his witness his testimony, you know, we don't have any choice. If you are a born-again Christian, you don't have a choice about being a witness for Christ. You have no choice. You are already his witness. Now, you can have a bad witness or a good witness, but you have no choice about being a witness. A witness is a compulsive confessor because of firsthand experience. Witnessing for the Christian is the natural result of the Holy Spirit and his power within. When I was first born again, nobody told me you should go out and witness to people. I ran home and automatically witnessed to my parents and my brother and my sister. I mean, that was just automatic, right? 
with you too, I hope, the apostles were already compelled to witness. Because remember this, back in John 20, 22, he had already breathed on them the Holy Spirit. Remember he said, receive ye the Spirit. And they were eager to go out. And they did up in Galilee. They told what they had seen and what they had heard and what they had handled themselves. And they spoke of what they knew to be true. But the Lord constrains them now to wait for the Holy Spirit to baptize them into the church body. He constrained them to wait on God's timing for the day of Pentecost. And why is that? Oh, I can't wait till we get to that. Because it's so interesting to find out about the Feast of Weeks that the Jewish people celebrated and what they were celebrating. Specifically, that was on this very same day that was the birth of the church. I don't want to spoil it, so I won't go there right now. But God has his timing. He was going to wait for 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, when it was the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, whatever she said, Shavuot, whatever that word is. <laughs> because then there would be thousands of Jewish people again in Jerusalem who came from all over. You know, they'd been scattered to all the nations. This was one of three mandatory feasts that the Jewish men were required to attend. So Jerusalem would be full of people. And what would they hear in their own native language and dialects? They would hear the gospel from the apostles and the other early 120 believers. They would hear it in their own language. And what would they do then? They would take it back to their country. So you see how the Lord had such a great plan and how he was already beginning to spread the fire. It's just so beautiful. Well, when these men had been with the Lord previous to his death and resurrection, they had, mm, they had a little bit of a problem about fighting over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And they were kind of, you know, jockeying to see who would get to have special positions of honor when he did come into his kingdom. Two of them even sent their mother to ask for the right and left-hand seats and all that. We know all about that. Um, And they thought, of course, that it was imminent and it was going to be secular and they were going to be big mucky mucks, you know, in the kingdom. (laughs) They were sadly disappointed when he died, not only because they loved him so much, but because they had hope so much in an imminent earthly kingdom that overthrew Rome of all her Uh, I mean, overthrew Rome and all of Israel's other enemies. But they were also very disappointed that they had lost their own hoped-for positions in that kingdom. But here he is telling them, you have, don't worry about that, you have very special positions of honor because you are to be my witnesses to this world. Actually, I've already chosen you. You are my witnesses to the world. Essentially, he tells them that you will be compulsive confessors to the world that I, Christ, suffered as it was written of me, where? In the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms, the whole Old Testament. You will go forth and you will preach and you will teach Christ crucified. And you will not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the enemy of God unto salvation, the dynamite, to the Jew first, and also to the the Greek, the Gentiles, right? (laughs) What greater honor is there 
What greater honor is there than to be a witness for Christ? Isn't that the highest calling there is? I was listening to Adrian Rogers on the way in, as I always do on Tuesdays, and he said, you know, I would, I would rather know what's what than to be in who's who. <laughs> I like that. I had to write while I was driving and put that down. What greater honor there can there be than to tell a guilty world of people who stand convicted and condemned before the judgment bar of a holy God that all who repent and believe will be fully pardoned. What a position we have as his ambassadors to this world. And he says to them, you must disperse yourselves, just like the sons of Noah. You know, some go this way, some go that way, north, south, east, west west and carry the light of this truth to the nations of this world which are in great darkness are there nations in this world that are in great darkness yes ours included well acts 1 9 to 11 um let me well you know what you can read it at home we've already discussed the lord's ascension in our life of christ study so let me just very briefly say that never again, as you well know, never again in the New Testament will we see the Lord Jesus in the same visible and material relationship with his men, the apostles. He will be absent from them at least visibly. He would be with them always, even unto the end of the world, the age, but he never again would be walking at their side. He never again would break bread and sit down and eat with them and teach them. He would never go fishing with them on the Sea of Galilee. Now, the last time the Lord had made this trip from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives was 43 days earlier. It was on the night of his arrest. He and his men had gathered in the upper room for the Passover supper. He taught them many truths which should have comforted them for what was ahead. Um, and they then when they left that room, you know, they went out the eastern gate, down the Kidron Valley, and up to the Mount of Olives, and they did not know it, but it was the time for him to be lifted up. How was he lifted up? On the cross. Again, now they're following the same path. They were in the upper room. He just talked to them. They left out the eastern gate. They went down the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives, and they don't know it yet, but he is also now about to be lifted up right in front of them. How? In his ascension. Speaking of lifting up, that was the last gesture the Lord ever did, was to lift up his nail-pierced hands and bless them. We don't know the words of his blessing, but it says that while he was yet blessing them, he just started ascending. If you read the ends of the gospel accounts about the ascension, and if you read Acts chapter 1, which four times has the word taken up. It also says that a cloud received him up. It says uh, elsewhere he was carried up. There are three different Greek words for taken up, carried up. It, it, It actually meant he was lifted, he was supported. I believe that the cloud, it says the cloud received him right here in Acts that the cloud actually received him and lifted him up. And I believe that that cloud was really the Shekinah glory cloud, which was the regal chariot of God, that he was carried off up into heaven right in front of them. It says, while they beheld him, they were watching. He did not just suddenly vanish out of their sight, as he had on other post-resurrection appearances. You know, he was with them one minute and then he was gone. 
He wanted his men to see his ascension. It was arranged by the Godhead that he would ascend in daylight, uh, not in the you know middle of the night secretly, and he would ascend in the presence of his apostles, not while they were sleeping, not while they were fishing, not while they were looking the other way, but while they were alert and looking right at him. If he had vanished secretly or disappeared in the night, they would have been confused about his disappearance, wouldn't they? They might have sat around for a long time waiting for him to appear again, like he had been, been doing for 40 days. And they might not have gotten busy, you know, doing what they should have been doing, just wait around for him to come back again. However, when they saw him leave this way, they had no doubt whatsoever that he had ascended to heaven. Mark even tells us that. Um, And this was also confirmed to them by two heavenly messengers. While they're still standing there gazing up after he's gone, you know, they can't see him anymore because of that glory cloud, and they're still gazing. Wouldn't you be? I mean, it's just like, what? (laughs) We thought we'd seen it all, but this just, mm. And while they're standing there, two heavenly messengers um, just appear. Now, you know, I said these were angels when we did our study, but I have read since that some people think they could have been, like in that picture, that painting, could have been Moses and Elijah. I thought, well, that's possible. They did appear with the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. Some people think Moses and Elijah will be the two mighty witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. I don't know. Or it could have been the tomb shelf and the tombstone angel. Remember those two guys (laughs) at the resurrection? Or it could be two completely different angels. I don't know who it was, but these men, uh, these heavenly messengers show up, and their message is, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. This same Jesus... You know, when he does come back at the second coming, the end of the tribulation, you can read about it in Revelation chapter 19, it is going to be the same Jesus. Every eye will behold him. He's going to come back in the same manner. He will be visible. Every eye will behold him. There was a man. Do you remember this guy, Father Divine, up in Philadelphia years back? Anybody remember? Do you? He wore a mink coat and diamonds, and, and he proclaimed that he was God? He said he was God. Weird. And when he died, he passed his deity on to his wife. <laughs> That's kind of crazy. Ooh. Do you, did you hear about it? Yeah. Yeah. To resurrect? Well, <laughs> they're still waiting at the tomb, aren't they? <laughs> Well, I, I was listening to a message by Dr. John MacArthur out in California, you know, and he said that his dad actually went to the church, and, and, the, and the Father Divine was telling his congregation that he was God, and, and then um, Dr. MacArthur stood at the back of the door and wouldn't let anybody out because he said, excuse me, I have a question for you. If you are God, let me see the nail prints in your hands. And he said the whole congregation got quiet before they then threw him out. (laughs) But when he comes back, he'll have the nail prints. He'll have the crucifixion scars. He's going to come back in like manner. 2,000 years has not changed Jesus. He will be the same Jesus. He'll come with a different program. He won't come as the lamb. 
He'll come as the lion, but it will be the same Jesus. He'll come back in a cloud. He'll come back to the Mount of Olives. It will all be the same. And we're out of time, but thank you. Get your homework on the email, or you have it in your hands, but you can get the lesson, and it's got everything I said, and even a whole lot more than I had time for. Let's pray. Father, it's just all so simple. We're just to be your witnesses. We don't have to be great theologians, and we don't have to study debate and all that kind of thing. We just have to open our mouths. The early church did it right from the day of Pentecost for the next 30 years, and and we can just follow that church by the blaze of their witness. How we pray that for our church, the church today in the 21st century. Help each and every one of us to be supercharged with divine power and fearless to proclaim what we know to be true about your Son. We ask in your name. Amen. God bless you.